0: Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of 90th Minute Winner with me Scott Noble. Um, before I introduce today's guest I'd just like to thank everyone who's listened to episode one and two of the fourth series with David Priest who my next guest knows quite well to be fair um, and my second guest was Chris Woff from The Athletic so again big thanks to everyone who's listened to it but also to those too who have actually took their time out of their day to, to join me on the podcast. Um, really pleased to be introducing this guest today, um, someone I've been speaking now for a couple of weeks now and I'm really pleased to have got on the podcast so please welcome uh, Ian Birchnell so Ian thanks very much for joining me today
1: Yeah pleasure thanks for having me
0: No problem at all um so we're going to be discussing a few things and it we did discuss a few things actually before we started recording the podcast and one of those was obviously the, the fact that you're back in England now and the fact that covid has struck um well for almost a year now actually in England but you're back home and homeschooling's not, not what it's cracked up to be, I believe. Is that right?
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> definitely not what it's cracked up to be. We've got, we've got three kids. Luckily, the, the nursery's open for the youngest one, who's a boy who's two, and then the two girls are five and six. So they're at, like, uh, one's reception class and then the next one's year two. So we're getting, like, streams of work every day for, for me and my wife to to try and get through. And, and it's no joke, you know, <laughs> like, trying to sit down and teach them and, and I can't imagine a full class of like five and six year olds. I don't know if I don't know how my patience would would go with that. But one's enough, and uh, and like going one to one on work, it's it's um, yeah, it's a bit of a grind doing that. But you know, we're getting through it, and and uh, we're counting the the weeks down, you know, until hopefully we can get back into the school. So yeah, it's uh, but it's it's interesting, you know. It's you know when you work in football, you spend a lot of time away from the family, so kind of. Trying to look on the positive side and say, well actually i 'm around the kids. you know probably the contact that i 've had with them since the summer since I left Ostersund. you know i 've seen them every day you know since the since the summer when normally I'd be away for large parts of the year, so I think it's been it's been nice to have so much time with them um, no, but
0: yeah, I'm also ready for a break. <laughs> yeah, but I suppose there are there are small mercies with with these sorts of things, and the fact that like you're saying that you've managed to spend so much time with them is is obviously a blessing in disguise, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so just again, off air, if you like, we were discussing what we were going to go through today, and it's <laughs> one of the things we always do at the start of these episodes is a coaching journey. But there's a specific area of your coaching journey I'm really keen on. Um. Delving into it a little bit deeper, but um, but firstly, if you want to just take us through where it started for you, and obviously where you're at now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I didn't have a playing background or a playing background to know, so so no, never played professional, was never in a professional club. Um, just played, you know, always played, but not a, a level to to talk about. So, um, I, I kind of went into the coaching process quite early. I went up to university, studied at Leeds Met, studied sports science, and then got a job with the academy kind of working in the football in the community and um, those kind of grassroots projects and from there I got an opportunity to work with the academy after a couple of years so kind of my first like steps in were with the under eights under nines at Leeds academy great like grounding really because a lot of top coaches were working there in the the youth and they were producing a lot of players so I think that was a a good experience I ended up staying in, in and around Leeds and Leeds academy for about four years. Then I moved to Bradford. It was a Bradford city for three years, working more with the older age groups, like 14 to 16 and bits with the youth team. Um, And then like kind of parallel to that, because they were not full-time jobs, parallel to that was the head performance coach at the University of Leeds. So I ran the full football program for the University of Leeds. I did that in total for seven years. Um, Really, really good um, coaching experience for me. And, And it kind of took the team from like, division 2b and, and we went up and we we won the british union's premier division uh, which was really good you know there was like sterling northumbria loughborough some top top universities in that so that was a good um, good experience from there then i moved abroad when i was 29 i became assistant manager at, at Sarpsborg in the top league in norway two years there then i moved i got offered a, uh, a role at, at viking um, or viking you would say over there but over there they call it viking um so i was at viking for well, three years, a couple of years as assistant, and then a year as the manager. Um, left there, and then I, I went to Östersund in Sweden. So when Graham Potter left to go to to Swansea, I was offered the job up in Östersund, and I spent two years in top league in in Swedish football. I finished there in July this uh, July twenty twenty. Um, so I've been back in England since then.
0: Brilliant. I think the Östersund story is something we're going to come back on to a little bit later on, but yeah. something we we spoke about. Um, just beforehand was the university stuff because I have been asked by um, one of my fellow coaches, um somebody, someone you might know, actually James Thwait, um, about the university yeah, stuff. Um, so my my question to you is really, what what experiences did did you have within that university environment, and how did that set you up for, for further in your your coaching coaching career?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I've gone. I played at university first, so I was a player at Leeds Met. Um, and I, I just loved the, the university football. You know, you're playing on really good pitches, good facilities. You know, when I was at Leeds Met, we had good coaches um, that were working with us, you know, well-licensed coaches, well-respected coaches that were coming in. Um, and the environment was great. So, like, for me as a young player, 19, 20, and the social side of it was brilliant. So I knew the value just as f- for the player, of how important to some people's lives the university football was, and um, had a real profound impact for a lot of people. So, I got the opportunity when I left to go across to Leeds Uni, um, the academic uni, they say, um, and uh, and I ran the football program there. They had no coaching, no formal coaches working in there. Kind of was a red brick uni without a history. It wasn't a sport uni, so it didn't have that much. Uh, infrastructure for the football. So I just went in and took control of the full programme. You know, four teams, 60 players, structured the training for them. Um, And it it was really, really good. I mean, for me, I'd done a lot of work in the academies and I'd got a lot of sessions and a lot of creative sessions and a lot of stuff for the younger ones for football development. But, you know, the the players were coming and although it was enjoyable, every player wanted to win. You know, they, they really wanted to come and win for the university. And so it was like, if you like, the first kind of step into working with players that wanted to to win football matches and became a bit more result-driven. So that kind of pushed me a little bit on the 11 v 11, the tactical frameworks. And you're coming up again. you know, I had a lot of players that had been released from pro clubs who were playing against Loughborough. We've got a lot of boys on scholarships. And and I think with good coaches, you know, Graham Potter was the coach at Leeds Met at the time. Yeah. Um, you've got other guys like Tom Curtis, who's gone on and been a national team coach who um, was at Loughborough University, So uh, my, uh, Michael Jolly, who's at Barrow now, who's at Grimsby, Was up at Sterling. So, you know, there was, it, it was a Kieran McKenna, assistant oh, at yeah. uh, Man United, was also within the U- Loughborough University coaching sector. So for me, it was a lot of, you've got really top facilities, you've got hungry young players that have got some talent, and you've got kind of everything that you wanted to create as much of a professional environment as you could. So it was a really, really, really good grounding for me. I spent seven years there and I think I learned a lot about um, working with players and developing, you know, tactics to win and and being reflective, using video. And I think, yeah, it it was, for me, that was a really, really important part of my my own coach development.
0: Yeah, so when you're saying there about the, it was pretty much your grounding as a coach and at what point during the qualifications, were you actually at Leeds? Um, was it level one, level two? Did you work all the way up to your no, A license, I, pro license?
1: I was on my B license, so I I came out of uni at twenty two, and then I I was on my B license then. Yeah. Um, and that's when I started doing my. Then then I became the head coach, uh, at, at Leeds Uni. So then I was I, I got assessed on my a B license, failed actually, and then reassessed and and passed it. But um, you know I was quite young doing the B license and. So I did that, and then I did the A license uh, whilst I was still there, and the Pro license I did when I was out in Norway. So I, I did my B and my A whilst I was coach at the university.
0: Yeah, so I think I mean I've never experienced coaching university players actually, but the, the people who I've spoken to who do are involved in that sort of environment to say that university players will ask a lot of questions, and you know because yeah. the, they're at that level where they are intelligent, yeah. and they're at that point where you know that have that ability to ask those questions. Is that something you found?
1: Yeah, I mean, I kind of look at my broad coaching experience and and I was doing stuff for so during the day I was doing stuff for Leeds United football in the community. So I was going out sometimes to on social inclusion projects, yeah. working with kids that have been thrown out of school and you're trying to learn how to communicate and engage them in football process. Then you might do it like an after school club for primary school. Then I go to the university and, and talk to lads that were just fresh from, you know, five hours of law degree or, or business uh, economics and yeah they're they're intelligent lads and they and so you you really have to change your communication levels as you go through the day because you've got different needs and different audiences um that you that you're catering for so when i got to the university they are inquisitive they're bright lads they take on information and yeah so you you do get that but you also have to remember that they're there because they they're all day in uni and then they come in the evening and they're not paid to do it they do it in fact, they pay to do it, um, and, and so you also have to consider. Look, I've got to put things on that they they want to do as well. I can't just go through like hours of boring tactical because it improves me as a coach. I've got to get a balance that you know they're, they're here for two two three training sessions a week. Um, I've got to maximise the time that I've got with them. So you have to become really time efficient with what you're doing in your in your coaching. So. You know, I've, I, when you work at pro level, you you have many hours with the players, and you can. Whereas, like with a university, I might only have contact time much much less than I would with a pro team. So then you've really got to decide on how you want to to be time efficient.
0: Yeah, I would I would say, I think that's that's the biggest thing for me is understanding what language you're working at and what level you're working at with the the vocab and especially yeah. when you're working with sort of five and six year old kids obviously it's going gonna, it's gonna to change naturally because of the age of them but I think that football understanding is a lot higher than maybe grassroots level players would you would, would you say that was the case?
1: With the university? Yeah. Yeah I would say so a lot of them have come a lot of them have been involved like first team players have been involved with pro clubs some went back into the pro game you know yeah. um, like Dave Sires that I had went, went back into the pro game and played uh, Doncaster and Bradford and quite a few that were in the England universities program. Matt Smith went and played at Leeds, Millwall. Yeah, yeah. So there was some, some good players that was in there. I think Bradley Pritchard at, at Charlton. So quite a few boys came out of the England uni setup and went back into the pro game. And a lot have come from it. So their football understanding was good. Um, and and yeah, like I say, I think just as from an environment perspective, like I went and played non-league for a bit, like Northern counties, Prem mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And, As much as i loved playing football i didn't love the environment that i was in then it didn't you know it didn't fit me coming from university football the university football sector for me was a hundred times better environment um so i think that's that's what i was really keen to be a part of when i when i finished uni to try and stay in that that sector so anybody looking at getting involved with university football i would i would recommend it massively as
0: part of your development Brilliant. So, your next step was was to move abroad, pretty much. Um, like you said, the Sarpsborg yeah. is an assistant manager. So, when you're talking about contact time with the players, was the contact time a lot more? Was were they a full time club? And when you were at the yeah. clubs uh, abroad, what responsibilities did you mainly have?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, they they were top leagues, so they were full time. Um, you know, so playing. We were. I was going from university football to then coming up against Rosenborg and Mulder. and. <laughs> Um, you know, coaches like Solskjaer and yeah. Ronnie Dyler and guys like that. So it was a, a really, it was a big step. But and we had good, we had a good team that year in, in Sarpsborg It was newly promoted, and we came in, and our, our kind of remit was to keep them up. But we had some really young, good young players like Mohamed El Anussi at Celtic now. Yeah, uh, you know, he was eighteen coming through then. <clears throat> so yeah, we we obviously had a lot of contact time. It was like. It was just for me, I'd, I'd spent like nine or 10 years doing five or six different coaching jobs to make up my income, mm-hmm. you know, like football and community, academy, university, inclusion projects, everything. And then suddenly it was like, right, you're assistant manager now. You've just got one focus, one team. So suddenly I was like, I felt like I was blessed with an unbelievable amount of time to like really go into detail in every aspect. So that was great for me. Um, I went in with Brian Dean. Brian was. Uh, helping me out at the university yeah. and he got the job and then brought me with him and Brian was like more of a manager type you know he he was really really good with the players good with the press like the kind of management but the on-field coaching I think he knew that that was my strength mm-hmm. so he kind of said to me listen you you do what you're good at you run the sessions um we'll, we'll talk through the sessions together and then you get you get out and do them and um you know, he, he gave me a lot of responsibility on the training pitch to kind of drill in the identity um, and, and create the sessions. And that kind of freedom for me was brilliant to get that kind of trust and autonomy for the the training from from the manager. Um, so, yeah, that was my, my main role when I went there.
0: So when you went to, from an assistant manager to a manager, did your role change in terms of did you stay hands-on or were you very much the Brian Dean mode and saying now the assistant manager will take more responsibility?
1: No, I, I stayed the same. So I went to, to Viking as, as assistant and they kind of recruited me for the same reason. They've mm-hmm. got a, a very experienced manager um, that had managed the top big clubs, you know, in, in Sweden and in Norway, in, in Shelly um, Swedish manager. And, but he was a very much a manager in Viking. who kind of needed that yeah. because it was a big club and it was a lot of politics... <sighs> Not not necessarily negative, but there was a big history in the club and a lot of things off the pitch to kind of um, be challenged with. And I think Scheller was a player there and then he, he really knew how to deal with that. So he, he took a lot of that weight off of my shoulders and then just let me run with the training again. But then when I became a manager, the club was... I mean, it was kind of typical that an assistant gets promoted during financial constraints because yeah. you make an internal appointment. It was a bit like that. Scheller left to go to South Africa... Uh, to manage Orlando Pirates, and then they they promoted me internally. I was only 32 then, and it was a big step because it was a massive club. We're going from huge financial issues, but I, I I didn't have a big staff because everything had been cut around. So my role didn't really change. I continued to be hands on, but it was maybe in reflection at, at my own detriment because I, I kind of tried to take every burden upon my own shoulders. Like I was young, enthusiastic. Um, I was going after it. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to control everything. Um, and probably in hindsight, I, I should have mixed the role. You know, done a bit of kind of the the Brian Dean or, or Shelley Onovret that I had before, and myself. I, I, could, I, sh- I should have stepped back a little bit and taken a bit more overview. Um, but you know, when you when you get promoted and, and you've got that relationship with the players, it is quite hard to to change it.
0: So when you went to osterson, did you find that? Um... I mean, I'm coming, I'm slightly skipping yeah. ahead, but when you went to Ostersund, did you find that, one, did you have more staff to work with? And two, those experiences from, from Viking was, you know, the same that you took everything on your own shoulders. Were you able to de- delegate a little bit more?
1: Yeah, definitely. Although when I first went in, I didn't have any staff because Graham took them all, you know. <laughs> Graham went to, uh, he went to Swansea and he took Billy Reid, who's assistant. He yeah. took Bjorn Hamburg, uh, who's his other assistant at Brighton now. And he took Carl McCauley, who was head of recruitment. So like, I went into an empty office, goalie coach, physio, me, um, and then the club recruiter, Brian Wake, who was a uh, former assistant yeah. uh, before to Graham and then had left and come back. Uh, and then I got to, to bring in another assistant with me. Um, we had the uh, former national team female player also on the coaching staff, Johanna Almgren, mm-hmm. who was fantastic. Um, so yeah, I kind of got to build my own staff. I brought in an analyst, a Spanish analyst, and and like, that was really good because I kind of got my guys in there and then I could really delegate the work out and give pieces away and and entrust the the staff. So I definitely, definitely did that more when I went to Oster Sund and and utilised the staff base much, much more and kind of blended my role a little bit. I'm still very, very, I'm very much an on-the-pitch coach. You know, I like to be on the grass, but, um, you know, I definitely could could balance it a little bit and knew which days I, I could drop back a little bit and let everybody else run with it
0: yeah so staying with osterund then we you know we, i've I've listened to uh, the the t four football podcast with the athletic yeah. and when you won I thought it was brilliant um I actually extended my walk just to listen to it a little bit more because <laughs> it because it yeah. was really really interesting um and you spoke about a typical day in the life of an osterund manager, so apologies for having to repeat yourself here, but just for the listeners yeah. if you could just take take us through that
1: yeah, I mean you know i'm I'm a bit of an early riser, anyway, and having three young kids, you don't really have a choice about that anymore, <laughs> anyway. <Yeah. laughs> so I tend to be up early and and uh, and go into the the club. I mean, the good thing about osterson was it was like a small town, so I could. Some days I liked it. if it was a nice day, I would just cycle in, and yeah, um, it was quite nice to be quiet and and cl- close knit. Uh, but I, I tend to get in early and try and get beat the staff in. Actually, pre cu you had the, he was often in. He sometimes beat me in there because he likes to get in there early days yeah. as well and, and and get the coffee on. But um, yeah, in general, I like to get in and have some moments before like the, the chaos of players arriving or the staff arriving and just kind of set myself for the day and and like write down a few notes and things that I've got to pay attention to and, and things that I make sure I want to, to do during the day. So like have that period to myself where I can just reflect a little bit. Then I kind of open the office door and start to... To let the chaos happen as different people come in and then everybody wants everybody wants to, to talk to you. you, know, physios, this player's called in, he's struggling with his hamstring, we might have to do this, we might have to do that. You know, the analyst, what clips do you want to show the players in the morning and uh shall I take anybody here or is there anything extra you want me to do? So then the, like the barrage comes in. Um So I like that period just before that where I can have just a cup of coffee to yeah. myself and, <laughs> and plan a little bit. But yeah, then... Then we normally have like a, a staff meeting in the morning where we just go through the, the key components of the training session, you know, what we're we going after, what are our roles. Uh, normally we've planned it the day before, but it's kind of reminders about what we're going to do that day. Um, we tend to video every session so we we understand also, you know, what we're looking for from the video. Um, yeah, just general prep for them. Then we we all at breakfast together like nine o'clock, players and staff. And then we would be. Um, um yeah i guess uh 930 half an hour then 930 we tend to like bring the group together and have a meeting sometimes video reflections maybe just briefings on the training and stuff like that um then the players get ready for their the session which is at 11 they do a lot of like individual bits uh prehab treatment getting ready for the session then i can like pull individuals and have little chats with them you know either about the session or session yesterday or could be about the game and some reflections and stuff like that then we train um go and have lunch after the training session um come back in and then we you know we kind of got into a habit in the, the staff and i liked it that we we then put the training session straight onto the uh, the smart board that we've got and basically sit around and watch the session back and say, listen, did we did we do what we said we were gonna do before? Yeah. Uh what bits were good? Did this player perform how we thought he was gonna? What does this lead us into tomorrow? What do we need to work on? Um, and the good thing is with the the we we used a, um a program called Spideo, So it had cameras all around the, the stadium. We could like clip bits of the training that were either really important for the weekend or things that we thought a player needed to work on or something we have given him to work on and he showed it, yeah. you know, and then we could clip it, send it straight to his WhatsApp, you know, so like an hour after the session, the player's just getting that feedback again. Um, so we tend to spend the afternoon doing that. And then, yeah, sometimes there's a, a double session or video meetings again in the afternoon. But generally, a lot of the the, the next part is like, Either player meetings or planning with the staff session for tomorrow, and then like um, any we do a lot of opposition analysis, so we tend to watch lots of the opposition sometimes I watch it by myself, sometimes we watch it as a group and say, "You know, look, what do we think um, because i'm I've been a coach that likes the discussion you know mm-hmm. likes the debate and and like to challenge each other on those kind of things um I think it's quite healthy, so we, the problem is when you've got guys like Preasy, um and the other guys that we have, everybody's so passionate about football. We end up talking for hours and hours on the session and players and thoughts. So sometimes I'll be getting a call saying like, are you coming home? <laughs> I'll be like, yeah, yeah, we're on our way. We're on our way. So yeah, I mean, the thing in us Sundays Sunday's we had a brilliant staff group. Uh, I think we really enjoyed the, the, the work that we did together and because of that, it was easy to be in the office for long hours and, and talk football all the time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're typical days. They, they could be long days, but, you know, you, you're doing something you love and it's, and it's football all day. So there, there was never any complaints. We we all enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, I just want to go back to when, when you said about being able to bring your own staff in. So apologies again if, if you haven't repeated yourself. Yeah. And it, it's obviously something which has been mentioned to you a few times, the fact that you... Um, went in after Graham Potter, and Graham Potter had yeah. pretty much built Oster-Sunder to a really successful club and obviously made it into the Europa League um, playing against Arsenal. So, when you went in, you did you feel like you had to change much?
1: No, not really. Um, I mean, they'd obviously been on this journey that was unbelievable, um, and you know, you have to respect that when you go in, you have to respect the job that Graham had done over the seven years, which was frankly. Unseen before in Swedish football, yeah, so at what point you, you kind of go in and go well i 'm never going to be able to do what he did that 's just a fact i can 't take them up four divisions because we're at the top now, and the the, the gains that we 're going to make are very marginal now mm. you
0: know
1: we the, the season before I went there, they were in the Europa League knockouts, and they were fifth in the the top division with fifty points, and you know you go well there's not much more we can do with this team yeah um you, you know Most things are going to seem like a a failure. So I guess the key is look. Let's try to keep a level of continuity. We don't need to change lots and lots of things. The first thing I need to do is go in and understand what's being good, Mm -hmm. and then I have to talk and listen a lot to the people that are in there—players, staff, uh, personnel—and say, look, you know, what I don't want to do is come in and and go right now. It's my way. Graham's gone. We're going to do it this way. This is our direction. I think the club are clear on the the identity they played with and. And I played with a, a, a similar, not exactly the same, but very similar the kind of way to Graham and had the same kind of football interests and mindset. So I guess that's why I was recruited. Yeah. Um, so it was more a case of like, look, I'm going to go in and see what I don't need to do first before I, before I realise what I need to do. And then I kind of, after that, was like, okay, talking with the players, this, this, this and this have been unbelievable, but they still feel like this can be better and mm. this can be better yeah. because nobody's perfect. Yeah, There's still things that they felt they could get better at. And then I, I, I just went directly after those things straight away. Um, and that that was good. You know, we had real success in that first year. I mean, from the Europa League team that Graham had, they sold like they sold for Basharou who's now at Forest. Simon Godos we sold um, who's now at Brentford. Mm-hmm. Ken Sima went to is at Watford. And then Bruinori, the captain, went to Indonesia Sotiris went to FC Copenhagen. So he probably five, six, maybe five, six of the best players in Swedish football at that moment
0: Yeah,
1: went out the door together with Graham and his staff. Mm-hmm. So it was a hell of a, a job. But, you know, we finished sixth that year and 49 points and we conceded a penalty in the 93rd minute of the last game of the season. Otherwise, we'd have finished on 52. Ugh. So really, to, to look at that first season and I said, well, you know, we kind of maintained what had been going on before, despite losing all the staff and half the team. I think it, that in itself, that continuity was really, really important because I think the big question mark that everybody had, had at Oster Sun was, you know, what are we going to do when Graham leaves? Yeah. Because he's not replaceable. And I think that kind of just settled everybody down a little bit that season. And and uh, yeah, we, we, we did a good job at it.
0: Yeah, great achievement to be fair, to follow in the footsteps of, of Graham. Again, yeah. I I I'm definitely not making comparisons at all. You know, you're your own man, you're your own coach and um great achievement to be fair. So obviously you left after Sunday, in, was it July last year? So Yeah what happened to, to in in that sense?
1: Yeah, I mean a lot of changes have gone on. So going into the like the second year in the club we we then kind of had to recruit like eight, eight, nine, ten players because we'd lost so many. We brought a lot of players into the club. Um, took a while for them to bet in, but at the same time, we had the best start to the next season the club had had before. And, and we started really brightly. But in the summer, it, it became difficult. We lost another four or five players uh, that we had to sell. The economy wasn't great. Um, even though, you know, kind of going into it, I was thinking Europa League, success, uh, a lot of player sales, there should be finance there. Um, but, you know, the, the the chairman that was the chairman that Took the rise was uh, together with Graham was in in trouble off the pitch for some financial irregularities. Yeah, um, and he basically had to kind of step down. There was a lot of negative press around that. Um, he, he got sentenced to to prison, um, although he's appealed it now and it's under appeal. But mm-hmm. that that caused a lot of chaos and turbulence. And with a young team, suddenly a lot of sponsors were pulling. There was economy problems then. Um, and it became quite a stressful end of the season. You know, the target then was, look, we've got to keep our place in the league. And it, even during that time, the, the federation withdrew our license to play in top league football. Mm. So even if we stayed up on merit, which we did, they wanted to relegate us anyway on financial irregularities. Right. Um, thankfully, we stayed up and then we appealed it and, and they gave us our place back. But it was a lot of stuff going on um, in, in my own like personal side, you know. My wife's father was very sick and he sadly passed away in in March um, this year. And, um, you know, it's a challenge for the family at that point. My wife had been away. Her father had been sick for a long while. And um, I think then when COVID hit and I could see that resources, there was a big change of chairman and board. Resources were stressed. So I sat down and had a, a conversation with the club, very open conversation with them. And I think, you know, we we didn't really agree on the path that the club needed to go on. Um I was very clear with where I felt like it needed to go. They were not really on the same. We we weren't seeing the same pictures. I think it was an opportunity for me to say, look, you know, I've got a long contract here, but maybe the best thing is that we, we part ways and that and, uh, I go this way, you go that way, and, and um and that's what we did. So so I left in July. It was two really, really good years, really interesting years. Um, I was pleased with the job and pleased with the kind of squad that I left. Um, you know, when I've gone, but it was—it felt like it was the right moment for me and the family to get back to England, get the kids settled into school, and kind of look forwards to a to a, a new or different
0: challenge. Yeah. So, just to literally continue your last bit there, a new or different challenge. What do you think is next to you? Obviously, are you, are you uh, looking to stay in England to coach?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know. The minute I left Ostersund, I think I did over seven years in Scandinavia, and I had a good reputation there. You know, I took the pro license out there, yeah. and I think straight away I had phone calls about roles immediately back in Norway, and and, uh, and and most recently I've had interest in Denmark. But I kind of have been going. Look, I don't know what you know. I have to consider everything, the family, and maybe I want to give it a little bit of time to see. How things are are in England. What sort of opportunities present themselves um, before? I think I'll always have an opportunity back in Scandinavia yeah. because of what I've done over the past seven years. But I think I'm quite open, really. You know, whether whether it's part of um, part of a, a staff at a higher level um, that that would interest me. You know, I, I love being an assistant, and I'd quite happily go back to, to that kind of a role in the right environment. Um, or or take on a head coach role um, at a club in England so I think I'm waiting to see what what things come up Um, I've not jumped I've had one or two bits of interest but not I'm not going to go into something that I don't think I think the next step for me is really important now so I'm kind of patiently taking my time with it
0: Yeah brilliant well all the best um, with that the Newcastle job might be available soon so I'd, I'd, I'd be more than happy to say you <laughs> yeah. take that one um, I think that's uh, that's a tough gig right now. What <laughs> yeah. I have to say it's oh, a tough gig I wouldn't blame you for not taking that to be fair yeah. um, just to finish off with and, uh, as well as the T4 Football Podcast you were also a guest on the Coaches Voice Academy um, yeah. which is a re- a- another really good platform for aspiring coaches or coaches who want to improve their game and develop their understanding of the game so how did that come about and what, what were you sort of asked to do was it put a session on with a certain uh, group of players or how did it work?
1: Yeah I mean the, the the first kind of contact I had with them was when I left uh, V King back in so that would have been 2017 and um, I just got a phone call from them and said you know they were kind of taking a different angle on on coaching and they wanted like a broader range of coaching experiences that can kind of reach out to you know it's good to have they've had guys like you know they've had like Mourinho on there Um, and obviously Mourinho resonate to a certain level but they need different stories at different levels so yeah and like I guess my story of kind of going through academy coaching university coaching um, a lot of young coaches can probably resonate with that so I think they wanted my story and, and, and also my story from, from V-King and my experiences. And I I felt like, look, I'm going to be totally open with what I was good at, what I was bad at, and, and uh, because I think that helps other coaches learn. Um, and I'm all for that. So I did that. And then, then I uh, you know, I was obviously, then I went into Austin Sunday and I was busy. Um, but I came back and I had a break and they said, look, during the break, would you like to do like a masterclass mm-hmm. session? So then they they set me up in actually it was with like a university team in I uh, went down to the Hive in Barnet mm-hmm. and worked with a university set of lads so they weren't my players but they just said look put a session on that you think um, you know will complement what we're doing and, and you know give a you you choose the topic but we'll you know we'll film it and you can talk about the session and. Mm-hmm. And I, I enjoy that, you know, I enjoy that kind of uh talking about the coaching process and and hopefully putting something on that other people might go, Oh, I like that idea. I'll change it around and do it a little bit different. And then most recently they since I've been back and certainly in lockdown and had a bit more time, they said to me, Look, you know, would you be interested in reflecting on one of your games as a manager? Um, and go really into detail, you know, video clips and analyse it and and critique it and and uh, put it out as like a tactical masterclass so that was the the latest one and I've really enjoyed doing it because it's good um, it's good practice sometimes to go out of a comfort zone and kind of do those sort of things you know sit and, and analyze for an hour one of your games and go really depth with it because it kind of you know sharpens the sharpens your own process so I think it's a really really good platform I have to say Coach's voice and they they do it really really well some of the the coaches they've had on there in the sessions have excellent so i'm happy to kind of contribute to platforms like that for sure
0: yeah i agree with that it is a really good platform as well as as well as others but i would definitely recommend anybody that hasn't hasn't watched the master class or the session yet to to do both because i've watched it a couple of times and i'd be happy to watch it again because i took a lot from it as well so uh, personally from me thanks very much for that um yeah. But it's been another amazing chat, um, with another brilliant guest. So uh, I'd like to thank you very much, Ian, for coming on today. It's been a, it's been a fantastic episode.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Great to speak to you.
0: Um. So thanks everyone for listening. Uh, join me next week for episode four.